Good morning, Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Big thanks to the Breakfasters, who will be back with you tomorrow morning between 6am and 9am. Over the next three hours, we're going to be talking about comic books. We're going to be talking stop-motion claymation with director Adam Elliott. His new film, Ernie Biscuit, is screening at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Very much looking forward to catching up with Adam in about half an hour's time. We're also going to be talking projections which light and light uh, art made of light is uh, very much in vogue at the moment uh, so we're going to find out about the west projections uh, happening in Footscray between the 6th and the 22nd of August we're going to talk theatre with Fleur Kilpatrick as our part of our Shoot the Messenger segment, reviewing what's been on and is on and uh, previewing what's coming up on Melbourne stages. Um, on the visual front, photography. We're going to speak to National Geographic photographer Steve Winter about his career and about shooting animals so that they survive. Uh, and if you're an American dentist listening to the program, yes, I am referring to you. Uh, we're also going to keep the myth conversation going a little bit later on in the show. Thomas Caldwell will be coming in uh, to talk about the MIF Shorts programs. We're also going to talk about how arts can help people recover uh, from trauma and disaster. And our Dancing on the Radio segment is on this week. Joe Lloyd will be coming in uh, later on this morning. And Cerise Howard is back from Europe, so she'll come in as well with a, a slightly out-of-sync fistful of celluloid segment this week as well, uh, previewing some of the features and documentaries and everything else that's on at Myth. because given that she's a festival junkie uh, and has just come back from Europe, then uh, no doubt she's already seen a good handful of the films in this year's Melbourne. International Film Festival program. So all that and more on the show today and more being quite a lot of music uh, and who knows, maybe a giveaway or two. Before I go any further, I did just want to acknowledge that yesterday Melbourne's literary community lost a very bright and beautiful individual. Um, just in case people haven't heard the news, I'm not going to say the name because the last thing you want to hear about is the death of a friend or colleague from a radio announcer rather than from a close friend. But I know a lot of people who are hurting today uh, and if you are one of those people, find someone and hug them. Uh, tell your friends how much you love them. They are all very important to you. Uh, and uh, I think I'll just shut up now and play a track. There will be lots to see at the Melbourne International Film Festival, as you've just heard. Uh, and speaking of MIF, as I said, a couple of MIF-related interviews on the show today. Um, local animator Adam Elliott coming in for an interview in about 15 minutes' time. Thomas Caldwell, who uh, works at MIF as well as being a regular presenter here at Triple R, will be joining us to talk about the MIF Shorts program. And Cerise Howard will be previewing some titles uh, towards the end of the show. But right now, we're going to talk comic books. It's time for our monthly 
monthly segment, Drawn Out, with Bernard Callio. Good morning, sir. Richard Watts, hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Look, I, I've got a, a comics angle on the uh, on MIF as well. I'm part of a panel called Getting the Look, the Pitch of the, pitch of the Movie Poster, uh, on Wednesday the 5th of August at the Wheeler Centre uh, from 5.30 to 6.30. That's a free session, and it's me, uh, Zach Hepburn, who's now running the... Uh, the Astor? Astor Theatre, and a bunch of amazing designers, Sunny Day, Jeremy Saunders, Donna McCrum, and Jason Jason Lee Howden, who's just made Deathgasm, uh, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, movie posters, so that will be, uh, uh, and I'm talking about the poster for Graphic Novels Melbourne, a film that I made, and that Pat Grant did the movie poster Before. for. Yeah. Cool. So okay. That's, that's a... Uh, and we're really in, in uh, uh, festival f- sort of fever aren't we, in, in, in August. Well, because we've got Melbourne International Film Festival opening tonight, then coming up in a couple of weeks further down the track, uh, Melbourne Writers Festival. Uh, so yes, uh, yes. I'm doing a couple of bits and bobs there, and I suspect you are as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, and um, also I have a comics angle on... You know, I've got a comics angle on. I've got, on I'm, everything. I'm, I'm going to the toilet, really, but uh, let's not go into that. But uh, I've also there's a, a, a comics session on... Uh, uh, Friday the 28th of August and it will be a conversation between Josh Santo Spirito, the Australian graphic novelist who made The Long Weekend in Alice Springs, uh, not graphic novel, a couple of years old now, and Jan Bauer from Germany um, uh, who has made The Salt... or he made a, a comic book called Der Salzige Fluss in German uh, and I and a couple of friends have got together and made a new publishing company, uh, comics publishing company here in Australia called 12... Panels Press. Named after the standard number of panels on a comic book page. Uh, uh, indeed, Richard, the perfect number <laughs> of panels on a page. And uh, we've, we've translated this book with the help of the Goethe Institute, and the Goethe Institute have brought yarn over. So there's a conversation between those two guys on the 28th about drawing the outback. So because... Um, yarn's book is about walking the Lara Pinta Trail on the uh, McDonnell Ranges. So, yeah, uh, festivals, comics, yeah, they're a good mix. Yeah. So why start up a new publishing, comic book publishing company? Because, you know, Richard, there's just not enough comics in the world, obviously, and so the more that you can add to that, the better we all will be. Um, and we really wanted, uh, I and Erica Wagner and Elizabeth McFarlane, the partners in this, uh, in this uh, publishing company, uh, wanted to make a... A specific company which was really just about publishing graphic novels. So there's a lot of really great comics and mini comics being published in Australia. We really wanted to focus on making graphic novels and also making... So this is obviously a German graphic novel and we are uh, uh, translating it. We wanted to make this company, this publisher, uh, one that really stretched out to other comic book cultures. So hopefully our next book will be a Polish uh, a graphic novel, which we'll be tra- translating into English. So yeah, so that, that we, we would love to be publishing Australian stuff and taking that overseas as well. But at the moment, it looks like we're Importers. Yes. Well, the Salty River, mm. uh, your first publication, mm. looks beautiful. There's a, an almost photographic quality yeah. to the to the illustrations of the outback, which makes me think that a the uh, the uh, writer slash illustrator uh, Jan Bauer has been there and taken lots of photos. This is an autobiographical story. Yeah. Uh, so, but also the the way then placing these human figures over the landscape, it's it's not as if he's taken photos and then just literally drawn people on. He's reproduced the landscape with a, a beautiful kind of uh, beautiful 
inking with the the folds and features of the of the ranges and the grasslands and the and the quality of the light. So mm, yeah, yeah and a- then the the human figures are. They are simpler uh, yes. in the way they're drawn. They're slightly, they're kind of with slightly more, I guess, cartoonish features: big, round, black eyes, and uh, and and sharp noses, and so forth. But a beautiful juxtaposition visually. Yeah, well, in in the in the comic book make uh, uh, theorist Scott McCloud's language, that would be he, he'd talk about one set of lines to see, another set of lines to be. So there's that sense that you identify more readily with a simplified. So think of Tintin, for example. You know, the you know he's almost a Tintin's. A, almost a cipher, you know, he's such a simply drawn character. So there's this idea that uh, comics take advantage of that and invite you into identification with a character by reducing perhaps the more, uh, um, you know, I suppose photographic or over-representational aspects of the people, but you can really go into that in 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 the backgrounds and the... And the landscapes, and that's what Jan does, I think, in this in the Salty River. Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah. Uh, when will people be able to get hold of it? Of it, yeah. We'll we'll have a launch uh, on the on the twenty seventh uh, of of August. So that's the night before the the talk at the uh, Melbourne Writers Festival, which is on the twenty eighth. Drawing the outback, Josh Santo Spirito and Jan Bauer. So, um, speaking of global comics, let's talk about comics, a global history, 1968 to the present, Mazur and Dana, and uh, have pa- pa- are the writers, producers of this This is book. massive. It's a massive tome. It's from, Te- is it Thames and Hudson? Are Thames and Hudson. Thames and Hudson yep. are, the, are, the, are the publishers, and came out last year. And this is, it's called uh, Comics, a Global History, 1968 to the present. So, they're not trying to cover the entire comic book history, no. but just the last five decades but, but, in which but, but, the underground comic happened in which the mainstreaming of comics happened uh, post Alan Moore's Watchmen uh, uh, and that that Batman Richard, Richard look at it look at him folks he could he could do he could do this segment by himself um, uh, but also very very brilliantly this book and it's perfect for certainly perfect for me it what it does is it situates the American um, change and certainly 1968 really as you say places it squarely in the revolution in comics Really, they, they place it with the Robert Crumb undergrounds, the return or the arrival of the personal in, in comic book form. But they are also placing it in context of the other two major comics cultures, which is the French, French Belgian French uh, tradition. And Japan. And Japan. And, and what this beautiful book does is it skips, betwe- it continues to skip between these three major centres of uh, comic book experimentation, uh, production, publishing, art, I suppose. Um, and it skips between individual artists. It skips between publishing companies. It, and it, 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 it is a remarkable thing. It certainly gives, has given me a gr- greater deal of insight into the way that the, the comics cultures in each of those countries have developed uh, since 1968. As one reviewer was saying, well, you know, they could have started it, you know, in 64, which is when Gar Garo, G-A-R-O, Garo, the, the, the very famous uh, underground uh, Japanese anthology came out. Uh, they kind of started it when Barbarella was published in France, which was apparently a great breakthrough book uh, in, in, in uh, Bond Désiné or 
French comics culture. But, uh, yeah, it is, it, it is a rip. It's wonderfully illustrated. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly more of a survey book. So what I suppose it's giving me, at least, is uh, a sense of the broad sweep of comics, certainly the way that avant-garde's have risen, how they ha- those avant-garde's in various cultures, and, and they do spill over into, say, Japanese. They do, oh, Sorry, not Japanese. They also spill over into the um, discussion of the German scene, the... Uh, um, Spanish, Spanish, as well. yes, yeah. thank you. Um, so it's you know, and but their yeah, their focus is really on those three main pillars, I suppose. Yeah, and one of the fascinating things about a book like this is that not only the education for anybody who knows a particular country's comic language and style well, but as you say, that flowering of an avant-garde, for example, which often happens simultaneously in different cultures yeah. around the same time in unconnected places of the world. It's as if there's something in the zeitgeist forces things to fl- or not forces, but encourages things to flower simultaneously in. I think punk is a really good example. Everybody points to London in the 70s, but then you also go, well, actually, no, it happened independently in Brisbane as well. Yeah. So there's these, or um, the beat generation, which yeah. is happening in New York and San Francisco and elsewhere, kind of in London as well. So again, in, yeah, that, that sort of stuff, enormously exciting, you know, because, you, you know, and, and there are def, there, you know, there are social forces that drive those. There are also uh, um, industry forces. So, you know, there might be a, a, a hegemony that's big, that, that, that's formed, you know, particularly in France, you know, and there's lots of sword and sorcery and that all gets a bit weighty and sort of, uh, you know, uh, 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 hidebound. So then you get little publishers uh, uh, um, popping up underneath that, breaking the the new ideas and then uh, uh, giving new ideas to, to, to comics in, in, in France in that, in that, um, uh, st- in that, that time. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a ripper. And... Um, and for me, has given me you know some some new f- uh, uh, places to research yeah. uh, after, afterwards. So, that's so this is Dan Mazur and Alexander Danner's comics: A Global History, nineteen sixty eight to the present, published by Thames and Hudson. Uh, I love the fact that uh, there's a little bit of the shadow on the, uh, <laughs> illustrated on the front cover. Crime does not pay. Yes. What's uh, and uh, this is it's a, a hefty time, but not an overwhelming time. It's about three hundred and twenty pages. Yeah. So for a, if you are serious about your love of comics uh, as an art form and you want to know more about its history globally and the connecting threads between cultures and uh, and publications around the world that sounds like a great book to get your hands on yeah they're really they're they're, they're rippers these guys they've done, they've done a great job and I yeah. would imagine that that would be available in a lot of independent bookshops so it should be fairly accessible in fact I picked this one sec- second hand so yeah, things, yeah. Are, things, are, things are going well yeah excellent and uh, one more treat for one us, more perhaps. treat well let's let's talk um, let's talk let's talk let's talk about Osamu Tez I, I've, I felt like we need to start talking more about manga can you slide that that front that front little thing fly, slide it across that little yeah see that see that isn't that cool we're talking about uh, this is a book which has what looks like a little banner over the mm-hmm. over the, the front cover which indeed you can slide left to right well, like a sliding screen in a Japanese house, house. yes ah. indeed uh, so we're talking about Ode to Kirihito uh, which is um, a mid career book by Osamu Tezuku the great, he's called the god of manga, uh, lived from 28 to 1989 so he died fairly early at, at age 61 and apparently when he was on his deathbed his last words were I'm begging you, let me work 
<laughs> uh, famous for his productivity. Um, 700 volumes of manga he produced over his life, 150,000 pages. Wow. Yeah, and this is this is a really interesting book of his, uh, um, Ode to Kirihito, and it is about a disease, uh, Monmao disease, M-O-N-M-O-W disease, which takes, takes people over and turns them into dogs explaining the front cover that uh, Richard and I have been talking about, which when you slide it across, slide this banner across, it's a man, and then you slide it across the other side, and it's that man transformed into the dog. And it's a time, and it ties into our earlier discussion, because at this time in Tezuka's career, who's really uh, uh, credited with really shaping and giving um, a form to post-war manga in, in Japan. He'd actually been taken over by the young guys from Garo magazine. He'd sort of started to be the old man of comics, a little less respected, and so he was really delving into darkness, really, which is a lot uh, of what his contemporaries or the new cartoonists around him were really plunging their um, their pens into the, the dark side of, um, of human experience. And so Tezuka gives himself the, uh, uh, the license to do that with this book, which is, it's, you know, it's, it, it is a, a mad, quite a, quite, a, quite a mad book. It's very, very big, uh, hundreds of pages long. And uh, it's about a chap, who, a doctor at a, at a hospital who uh, is investigating this Mon Mao disease, the dog man disease, uh, and then, of course, catches that self-same disease yeah. and is turned into a pariah. He wanders the world. He goes uh, to, per, uh, to um, Iran. He goes to uh, Korea. Um, he meets... Delightfully, or he meets the person uh, who is the the human donut. Uh, uh, <laughs> is this person who uh, does a performance where she's dropped into uh, pastry and then into boiling hot oil and bursts out of the oil, uh, out of the pastry rather, before she gets cooked, and they form a bit of a team for a while. Of it's, course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> uh, the, the dog man doctor and donut woman. <laughs> sure. Why am I not surprised? Sure. Look, it's it's. Obviously, a rich and complex kind of book, and difficult to do justice to in a, in a few minutes on radio. But as you say, over eight hundred pages. Uh, again, uh, I would imagine very carefully translated because the uh, the 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 it's not just the translation of the dialogue that uh, uh, has been translated here, but kind of uh, the sounds as well of, yeah. of people eating and yeah. uh, and. So lots and lots and lots of work has clearly gone into yeah, absolutely. this. Absolutely. So that, that, and that, as I say, that's from, well, I don't know if I did say, but that's from the early 70s, and it really marks a break point for, for Tezuka. After this, he does go into, you know, he does produce his eight, nine volume uh, Life of Buddha. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, his, Siddha, his Siddhartha story. story. Um, but really what a lot of uh, writers about manga say that uh, Kirihito leads on to his last most famous creation. Of course, Tezuka gives us Kimber the White Lion and Astro Boy earlier in his career, but his last great co- co- uh, creation is um, Black Jack, or Blacku Jacku, uh, who is a, uh, a rogue doctor, uh, scarred, uh, impossibly brilliant, who travels the world and, um, and is engaged by various people to perform impossible surgery so blackjack is uh is the uh evolution i suppose from ode to kirihito the the book of the dog disease 
from Osamu Tezuka. So I'll talk, I'll, I think I'll keep bringing in some more um, classic some more manga. Yeah, please yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Well, we'll catch you, Bernard, in a month's time. See you then. And we'll talk more comic books and manga and more. Just before those announcements, we heard of Monsters and Men. As I said, their track Wolves Without Teeth from the album Beneath the Skin. My next guest has just joined me in the studio. Adam Elliott is uh, an award-winning filmmaker who uh, works in traditional claymation techniques. You may know him from such films as Harvey Crumpet or Mary and Max. His new film is called Ernie Biscuit and is screening at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, accompanying uh, Lally Katz's stories I want to tell you in person. It's the story of a deaf Parisian taxidermist whose life changes when a dead pigeon arrives on his door. It's a very, very Adam Elliott kind of film. Adam, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, so, you, as I said, you work in, in very traditional stop-motion technique, claymation. You make uh, your sets, you kind of hand move and animate everything. When did you first get into animation as an art form? Was it as a kid watching, I don't know... Um, Kind of cartoons on TV? Or? Well, look, as a kid, yeah, I watched lots of cartoons, but I never wanted to, to be an animator, and I'm still not a big animation buff. I'm, I shouldn't say that, but, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I was a latecomer. I went to the VCA, and with my rite of passage went to the film school there. But I was 25 at the time and really didn't know what I wanted to do. But once I got into the course and got my hands on some clay, it was almost like this primeval moment where I knew my what my calling was and it was going to be plasticine. Now, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, previewing Ernie Biscuit last night and watching it instantly, it's so obviously uh, an Adam Elliott film. There's everything slightly wonky and askew. Um, there's uh, a, a beautiful, bittersweet tone to it as well. Yes, there is comedy and, and drama, but there's also some tragedy and sorrow as well. Why mix emotions like this? Well, look, it's really simple. Um, when I was at film school, uh, there was a lot of animation being made that was what I call colour and movement. And uh, the, the subject matter wasn't terribly challenging. It was mostly geared towards children. It was very one-dimensional. And, and I just wanted something more. I wanted something with a bit more depth. And uh, and I wanted to be challenged. And I thought, well, the only way I'm going to see these films is, is to make them myself. And... You know, that whole thing that life is comedy, tragedy, it is bittersweet, and, and really these little blobs of clay, um, you know, it is hard to get the audience to suspend their disbelief when they're looking at claymation, but my aim is to make these little blobs of clay uh, come to life and so if one of these characters dies you really are moved and that's a hard thing to do but I think it it is easier when you do combine comedy and tragedy because that's what our real lives are like, you know. Uh, how long did it take to make Ernie Biscuit? It's a 20-minute film, and I would guess that each, I don't know, five seconds of, uh, of animation is at least a week worth of <laughs> or more of work. Yes, look, it's ridiculous. Each film uh, is averaging about five years for me. And actually, I was giving a talk to some little kids a, a while back, and uh, I was telling them that each film takes five years. And I said, any questions? And this little boy put up in his, his hand and he said, uh, Mr Elliot, if it takes you five years to make each film, I've worked out you've only got four left. <laughs> and I 
realise, I know she's right, yes. And so I'm sort of, it's sort of a bit like tapestry. You, you know, you go in and do your one centimetre a day. Well, we go in and do our sort of three to five seconds. So, yes, yeah, so, so Ernie took a year to shoot, but it also took a long time to write and then there's post-production, all the other elements. And so, yeah, sadly, five years. Well, sadly, but I mean that is a long time to in, to focus and invest in one project. But it also then means that clearly, for me, certainly watching the film, that you can see the the that attention to detail and that focus invested in the film. Whether it's kind of a a pile of of dim sims and chico rolls, for example, individually made, or the cityscape of Paris and mm. the rooftops and and the Eiffel Tower and so forth. There's so much detail in every frame. Well, look, you know, my mum said good things take time and it's quality, not quantity. So, uh, you know, and actually making the film is quite meditative and, and cathartic in a way because particularly with this film, which I did do everything, I was a megalomaniac on this one, and you are most of the time alone, uh, you're in the dark... Uh, you've just got your blob of clay there and you, you do get into the zone a lot of artists talk about that zone but particularly when you're using your hands and you're sculpting something and you're not in front of a computer screen you you know th- you have to enjoy the process with animation I mean the end result of course is important but as I've gotten older now that I'm in my 40s I'm really trying to enjoy each day as it goes you know you just said that uh, you became a megalomaniac with this and did everything yourself. Is that because on your, your previous film, your feature, Mary and Max, you had to employ a, a team? So was this a case to kind of like, I don't know, turn back the clock a little bit? Or? A little bit. It was, I really wanted to get back to basics. Um, Ernie was originally going to be a feature, but it was too ambitious and too expensive. And, I, and I've turned every script I've written into a film. So I said, right, well, I'll turn it into a short. And, you know, directing a feature film, I think we had over 120 people on Mary Max. And, you know, I was I was the conductor of the orchestra, but I realised by the end of the project, I really just wanted to be the guy down the back playing the triangle. You know, it's really missing the hands-on element. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did it. And there's this whole perception that, you know, with shorts, you've just got to do a short, then, you, you know, move to a feature and... You know, shorts are an art form in their own right. Just like short story writing. Absolutely. They're not necessarily a stepping stone to a feature. And and I think in many ways, you know, making a short is harder because it's knowing what to uh, take out, not put in, you know. So you have to be very succinct and and you have to distill your ideas. And to develop a character over such a short period of time is really hard. Now, a lot of people, if they think short film, they're probably thinking five minutes, six minutes. This is a 20-minute film, so there's which for a short is... Is is that unusually long? <laughs> well, programmers hate me because I keep <laughs> delivering these long shorts. Or, uh, but look, I, you know, again, quality, not quantity, and and it is hard, as I said, to develop a story in in, in five ten minutes. Um, but with this film too, it was my money too, so I had no investors telling me how long it should be, and I sort of let the te- uh, the characters tell me how long their story is going to be. But it's weird. Shorts are getting shorter, and features are getting longer. I don't know why. Now, I wanted to ask about the subject matter. As I said, it's about a, um, a deaf Parisian taxidermist. All of your the, your films, which I've seen previously, and I'm pretty sure I've seen all of them, have had an autobiographical element, for example, uh, yes. whether it be the story of a relative that you're uh, fictionalised or uh, in Mary and Max drawing on an old uh, pen-friend relationship that you had when you were young. Mm. Is there Does that autobiographical, autobiographical aspect, is that also reflected in Ernie Biscuit? Because the you're not a taxidermist, you're not deaf, you're not Parisian. <laughs> uh, 
certainly not. No, well, look, I, I think my characters, after, after, after doing this for 20 years and not having proper therapy, I've realised that, that, yes, these characters are extensions of myself, but I don't let the, the truth get in the way of a good story. And, look, I think um, all my characters are essentially archetypal underdogs. You know, they're, they're all not necessarily disabled. I don't use that word. I, I sort of prefer to see them as uh, imperfect characters, but we are all imperfect, and my aim is to is to get the audience to empathise with these blobs and hopefully either see a bit of themselves, somebody they know. I mean, of course, you know, I want the audience to laugh. And and with this film too, there was a lot of pressure on me to not kill the protagonist. And <laughs> <laughs> Pressure from whom? Oh, the world. You know, <laughs> I think my films are formulaic and they're, and they're getting a little bit predictable. So, you know, each one's getting harder to make. And uh, so with this one, I, you know, this is what I'm calling my fluff piece. It's a bit lighter. It's a bit more accessible. And isn't the, the body count, oh, there's still a few deaths, but the, the body count's quite low. Uh, one of the things that I also found fascinating about it is just the, I don't know, a sense of hope that it has. Um, yes. That kind of, you, I mean, you, you do, awful, as you've just said, you, you often kill your characters. You do do nasty things to them. I mean, where people get struck by lightning or yes. kind of... Uh, There's are, a testicle. Yeah, or, um, I don't know, just uh, feel betrayed by, their, by the, yes. the, the people closest to them. Yes. Um, uh, and, but so here, uh, certainly, there is a sense of hope, of, of, of love. And there's also an unusual friendship with a duck. Yes, well, I've always wanted a duck, you know, like Mr Lunig. He has a lot of ducks in his uh, cartoons. But, look, there's always a sidekick. And, and again, I wanted to make this film a bit lighter. Uh, But, look, the duck doesn't quite escape. There's a bit of a twist with the duck. And the duck loses a percentage of itself. Uh, it's a it's a cruel, cruel world. Adam Elliott's Ernie Biscuit is screening on Tuesday the 4th of August and Sunday the 16th of August, 6.30pm on the Tuesday, 11am on Sunday the 16th, uh, as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. As I said, it's, it's been paired with Lally Katz's Stories I Want to Tell You in Person, which is a film adaptation of Lally's monologue, which is performed uh, around the country. Uh, MIF itself running from the 30th of July to the 16th of August. Now, Adam, I know that Ernie Biscuit had previously screened uh, in at Sydney yep. uh, and a couple of other festivals as well. Um, uh, it's doing Edinburgh International Film Festival and a, and a few yes. others. What's the response been? Oh, look, it's great. And um, as I said, it's a hard film to program because it's long. But I think, look, I've, I'm worried I'm getting into a lot of these festivals based on my reputation you know and I, I would prefer the film get ba- in based on its own merit but look it's been great it's, it, I try and make all my films universal too so you know the frame we just came back from Annecy in France and they they, they really liked it so yeah it's it's actually Argentina is, is it's really taking a liking to it I'm not sure why that is but you know you never know if you're worried about kind of films getting into festivals just on your reputation rather than the quality of your film is, is it time to create a pseudonym in the same way that Stephen King did kind of start publishing novels under an assumed name just so that to see whether it was the quality of the writing or the quality of the name but that's the trouble which you know as you said earlier you look at one of my films and you, you, there's a blobbiness and you know an imperfect look to it and that's the trouble with my stuff it is so identifiable so you know I don't think I could get away that's as true Nick Park or Wallace or Grover or any of those guys so no look I'll, I'm stuck with what I do I'm pigeonholed and and I can't do anything else, so this is my lot. Well, I'm very glad it is your lot because I very much enjoy 
appreciate the work you make. So Thank you. Adam Elliott's Ernie Biscuit screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival. More details at miff.com.au. You can catch it on Tuesday the 4th and Sunday the 16th of August. And uh, I may see you uh, at opening night tonight for a drink or two. Yes, and, and Radiothon, of course, in a few weeks. Indeed. Tune to Triple R just before those announcements. We heard Michelangelo uh, and the title track of his album City of Dreams. Now it's time for us to uh, move on to our next conversation, which I guess in some ways taps into the fact that it's. Uh been the official year of light in 2015. Every year you have a different year. You have the year of the child, you have the year of the, the ocean, you have the the year of whales. I don't know, maybe there has been, I'm not sure. I'm making it up. It is the International Year of Light, so there's been a lot of light-themed events. But those events have been tapping into a trend that's been going on for a while. The notion of projections in public space and transforming the way we look at the world by casting projections up onto walls. Uh, happening uh, in and around Footscray soon is an event called West Projections 2015 uh, and joining us to tell us more uh, about the opportunity to wander around, look at work, uh, we have the organiser of the event, Chantal Winter. Chantal, welcome to Triple R. Thanks Richard. So tell us why projections? What is it about projections as an art form that intrigues you so much? Well, um, projections I suppose are quite, uh, they're accessible so um, anyone can can walk along the streets and see see projections and and also they're they're sort of um, I suppose snippets of of what you can experience and anyone can experience that so um, that was uh, one of the reasons why um, video projections and sound pieces um, are, are are part of West Projections. And the thing that I find fascinating about it is the way that you project a, an image up onto a wall. It's almost like painting with light. It becomes a temporary artwork, um, and it it can literally transform the uh, a very familiar and or ordinary or humdrum place is suddenly transformed uh, just for a couple of hours, or in this case for for nine nights so it, it brings a, a place to life in a very different way that's right that's right and and Footscray's um it's quite it's quite a bustling place during the day and then you find in the evenings um it is known for all the restaurants and people are, are going in and out of restaurants but on the streets it's actually quite quiet so this is one way of transforming the streets um, and in unusual places too um, where you may not necessarily wander through um, because there are no restaurants so it's it's another way of exploring Footscray in a sort of unique and interesting way through projections. And speaking of restaurants and food the theme uh, for the artists participating in West Projections 2015 is food why why well um footscray itself is known for for food um and i thought artists do have a way of exploring issues in in sort of different ways and i suppose also the phenomena of um reality television with these cooking programs and chefs coming on. Um, I thought it would be a, a great place, Footscray, to explore the theme of food. And and so 
artists responding to food are actually responding in various ways. So um, through sort of uh, the passion of food through to the struggle of food, of, um, of uh, yeah, so there's, there's various ways that artists have responded to that and I think Footscray is the perfect place for this. Tell us about the artists who are involved and how you approach them, how you commission them. Um, so I, I took a, well, this event takes a few days to, to uh, sorry, a few days, a few months to organise. So in that time, um, I was looking at, at various artists that explore uh, food through their, through their practice. Um, so I approached the artists that I thought would really work well and who do video work um, to, to come on board. And, and all the artists involved are, are yes, absolutely generous and, and have made this event what it will be. Now, uh, there's uh, not only the chance you can wander around Footscray yourself and look at these works, or you can go on uh, guided walks to the sites, which uh, so you get a tour, you get some additional information about the work as well. Um, and there's, there's a range of sites that you've incorporated. So galleries, public spaces out in the street, there are some restaurants as well, some creative spaces, which does that mean something like Footscray Community Arts Centre? Uh, studios. So um, artist studios that, um, yeah, will be you'll be able to actually hear a few sound pieces. Great. Yeah. Um, and then kind of laneways as well and kind of little kind of hidden off-the-beaten-track places. Uh, and just so, again, just changing the way people look at Footscray and the way they listen to it as well. Absolutely. Um, and those three walks are guided um, and there'll be different sites on each of those three walks. And luckily we also have um, performances occurring on each of those walks that are part of the projection. So, yeah, it's an absolutely different way of seeing Footscray and, um, and incorporating sound and projection. Um, but the, the walks will be quite the highlight. But people can independently walk themselves. Now, these events are free, but for the walks you do need to book. Yes, yes, limited spots, so, yeah. Yeah, so if you would like to book for one of the, the walking tours, uh, which are happening on the 8th, the 15th and the 22nd of August after 6pm, then you can go to Winter Projects, that's winter with a Y, winterprojects.com, uh, and West Projections 2015 itself, happening for nine nights over the 6th to the 22nd of August. So if you go to Winter Project, you can uh, get some details of specifically of the, the different walk, night walks that are happening. You can find out details of some of the, the sites that are involved, some of the artists that are involved, and more. So Winter, with a Y, winterprojects.com. So what next? Given that uh, this is obviously a project that's just happening in August next month. What else have, have Winter Projects got up their sleeve? Um, well, actually, in um, September, October, November will be another series of walks um, along the Maribyrnong River, which will um, explore three sites. Three artists will explore three sites. Um, so that's that's the next event. It's part of River of Lives, and more information will be available on the website. So that's that's the next next series of walks. 
we'll have to keep our eye on that website and uh, I'll let people know about the, the, that project as uh, we get more information. So, uh, But right now, as I said, you can check out West Projections 2015, nine nights over the 6th to the 22nd of August and the guided night walks are happening on the 8th, the 15th and the 22nd of August after 6pm. Those are free. Bookings are essential. Uh, winterprojects.com. Chantelle Winter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Richard. If you're a long-term listener of the show, which is now in its 11th decade, uh, you would know that we, for many years, had a... Uh, ooh, hold on, I have to turn on my guest's microphone because she's talking in the background. I was just being surprised at 11 decades' worth of show. I think well, you might mean 11th 11, year. I do, yes. <laughs> 11 decades would mean I'd started it... I'd, I'd be ancient, yes. Okay, yes, it's now in its 11th year. It's second decade, was what I meant. I, uh, maths, yeah, never been good for me. Um, so we have a long-term segment that had been on hiatus for a while called Shoot the Messenger, uh, and it has a theme for... Fleur. Should we listen to the... F- yeah, let's, okay. let's have theme music. I'd forgotten that we had a theme. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you may now shoot the messenger. It's a little violent. I don't know how to follow that. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'd forgotten it was quite so violent. So, uh, anyway, Fleur Kilpatrick joins us. Fleur is a writer, commentator, theatre maker, blogger uh, and podcaster uh, and joins us on a fortnightly basis now to talk about what's been seen on Melbourne stages and what's coming up in terms of theatre and performance. So, good morning. Good morning. I'm still recovering, though, from from that intro. Well, recovering is generally a good word for it because you've got uh, a lot on your plate at the moment because as I said you are a theatre maker yes. so you've got a show of your own coming up at Theatre Works as part of the Flight Festival of New Writing I do so so it's quite nice at the moment actually I'm a bit redundant as the playwright this week so that's good they're they're in they're in production week and it's it's rare and lovely for me to be the useless one so that's nice but that opens well previews tomorrow and then opens Saturday night that's called Yours the Face as part of Flight so I'm really looking forward to that it's, this one's had two previous seasons in Perth and Adelaide and so it's nice to get to bring it home to our home city. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing it as well after the weekend once it's uh, settled in a little bit. For more info on the uh, the all of the works that are happening at Theatre Works as part of the flight program, uh, there are a number of plays. There's a, a panel discussion and more. Go to theatreworks.org.au. But let's talk about something that we've both seen. Yeah. So what we've both seen would be I'm a Miracle at Malt House, Richard. Do you want to kick us off? How about you kick us off and then I'll jump in with some comments and thoughts. Sure, well we did mention it last uh, last fortnight sort of saying that we we're both excited about it essentially the title comes from Marvin Lee Wilson's last words he was a man executed with an IQ of 61, executed in America back in 2012 um, and so Declan Green has, instead of just focused on that, has sort of looked at this range of injustices across multiple centuries um, and at the concept of injustice and at things that are so... When things get so dark and problematic and messy, 
that they almost need a divine intervention, they need a miracle to come along, I think is the main way to tie together these three very different stories that he has within uh, his work, beautifully performed by um, Bert Labonte and Melita Jerice. Is that how you say her last name, Richard? I'm not quite sure myself. Uh... I'm sure it's not how you say her last name, but she was incredible. She, for one thing, she has a monologue lasting... I'd say the bulk of the play is this actress' monologue. Because the the full running time of the the show is only about 70 minutes. Mm. Uh, She's probably got a good... 40 minutes yeah, of monologue, which is hard to sustain, and uh, Melita does a great job with that. It's, it's incredible. Um, it's a really very remarkable performance. And then as well, it's tied in with this exquisite composition. Um, By David Chisholm. Yes, yeah. yeah, with a soprano, live, a soprano on stage as well, who is also just stunning. But I think something that really struck me about this work was... In a way, the simplicity of it. As soon as you put something in a big space like that, it often feels like it needs to be grand and it needs to be so much going on. And and Declan is well known for his work with Sisters Grimm, which is certainly extravagant and luxurious and almost sensory overload. Um, And this one is very stripped back, I found. It's just beautiful storytelling for the most part but then they use the design elements incredibly well to give it that sense of grandeur but until those designs elements kick in I sort of had a moment where I went I could see this in a in a living room like it feels that sort of small in a way what did you think Look, it, it's, it's a very intimate piece of theatre, mm. definitely, uh, and it, it works uh, within the large space um, uh, at the Malthouse that it's been placed in, uh, partially because uh, the way they use the set and the lighting is mm. very, very powerful towards the end of the work. They, they almost try to create essentially a miracle on stage. Yeah. Um, I struggled a little bit with the monologue, I have to say. When the play mm. began, I it literally, within the first couple of minutes, moved me to tears. I found it so sublimely beautiful, the use of music and uh, and mm. the staging, the look of it. And then when we got into this long, extended monologue, which is the story of a, of a young man who's a soldier in the Dutch army mm. uh, in, I think, the 1700s, yeah. um, fighting slave rebellions and so forth, it's the... the because it's a monologue and because it does go on for so long, there were elements that I, of it that I found very, very strong, but I did struggle to remain engaged throughout that that sequence of yeah. the play. Then it shifts gears and we get into a domestic drama, um, which uh, I did connect with, I think, more strongly. Yeah. Um, but overall, nonetheless, I still walked away from, the, from uh, I Am a Miracle deeply moved and, and engaged by the work. I mm. think those, the narrative threads do tie together well. But as I said, I, I did struggle yeah. within the, the monologue. I, I struggled with some elements of the production as well. I mean, I, for one thing, I, it, it, it left me very shaken from very early on. I was quite shaken and, and stayed that way the whole time. It's very unrelenting in its bleakness, uh, which is unusual for Declan and I don't want to hold one artist up and say like you you've been very funny in the past so I expect some jokes well but But Pompeii LA is very bleak moth is very bleak as well so he's certainly not not afraid to no not not afraid to be to be dark at all but I've always found a sort of subversive dark humour somewhere in there as well which I found which I missed a little bit this time I'm not but then that's unfair of me to say 
that you were expecting that I'm expecting, expecting something. Yeah. But I, I, I found I just wanted some form of relief somehow. But that does not in any way mean that I'm saying don't go and see it. I think it's, you know, Richard and I have both seen a ridiculous amount of theatre this fortnight and it's still one of our top picks by a long way. We still, I think, really both support this playwright and think his work is incredible and his collaboration with Matt Lutton lends, like, gives such visual power to Declan's words. And the fact that um, Matt is not only then collaborating with Declan now, but he's also forging a, an ongoing collaboration with David Chisholm, who mm. uh, scored and composed uh, uh, the, the previous work, The Bloody Chamber, yeah. which was a beautiful, beautiful production as well, the uh, adaptation of uh, The Tale of Angela, Bluebeard. Um, Angela Carter's? Ange- Angela Carter's yeah. short story, yeah. Um, yeah. So... I mean, David's composition in this is beautiful. The, Absolutely. Uh, and visually, there's something about the almost, the the somewhat abstract nature of Matt's stagecraft mm. that I find really fascinating as well. The way he opens up space mm. and isn't afraid to have small moments in a in a large space yeah. uh, at a large scale. So it's uh, it's it's certainly a, a a compelling and intriguing work. Even though, as we both said, we did struggle a little bit with some of it. So, yeah. but beautiful performances throughout. It's I had Bert uh, Labonte and Matt Lutton on the show, I think it was just last week, um, uh, and I told commented to Bert that he is, I think, often uh, more considered as a, as a comic actor. Um, that there's a lightness and a levity to a lot of his work. And in this, as I said, within the first couple of minutes, I'd been moved to tears, and he moved me to tears again towards the end mm. of the work. Uh, so Bert is an incredible actor. In, I, I actually, I knew him initially as a not a comic actor at all. And so when I see him do comedy, I'm always like, oh, that's right. You are so funny. Um, so, yeah, I think to see Bert any time on stage is an absolute delight, as with Melita is is truly remarkable performance. And, and Hannah Lee Crisp, we should uh, acknowledge as well, who's the, 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 the soprano in the piece. So this is a piece about redemption, about mm. guilt, about tragedy. Um, and, uh, and injustice, I think. And about... injustice. And forgetting uh, yeah. the, the fact that we can forget injustice and, and push it aside or we can forget yeah. connections and relationships. It's a, it's a really intriguing piece. It's, as I said in the show last week, it's not for people who want a, a traditional three-act narrative and no. And a comfortable and safe night at the theatre. But if you're after something more abstract, um, uh, uh, then I am and a more miracle. more demanding and as well. Yes. Yeah, I am a miracle at the Malthouse is on until the 9th of August in the Merlin Theatre. Runs for 75 minutes. You can book at malthousetheatre.com.au. Mm. Well, the second show I wanted to talk about, you haven't got to see yet, but you've had a bit of a chat with some of the people. But I it's um, over at Red Stitch. It's um, Dead Centre and Seawall. They're sort of... Sort of a double bill. I'm not quite sure how best to describe this because Seawall was an existing text written by Simon Stevens and then it's a very short play. It's only about 25, 30 minutes. And so Red Stitch, knowing that they couldn't just put on that by itself, approached Tom Holloway and asked if he would write an accompanying piece um, and they didn't give him any parameters. They didn't say write something that is, you know, he could have written a, a... 50-minute long story, totally of his own, but instead he's written sort of a postscript to the work, although it's performed before it. Um, Now, again, I'll stress that Richard and I don't have any shows that we have to talk about. We both see a stupid amount of theatre, and so that this show is one of my... I want to stress that this show is one of my top picks for this fortnight where I've seen 
so much work. Um, I think the actors do a remarkable job. And really importantly, I think Simon Stevens' uh, Sea Wall is just one of the most perfect pieces of storytelling I've ever encountered. And that's why Tom Holloway's part didn't work for me, because it was so perfect that it it didn't need the additional narrative that was added on top of me. It's just crisp and gorgeous and it is totally worth going to see just one of the best playwrights in the world tell you an incredible story performed by amazing actors who are so dedicated to their craft. The visual uh, imagery that Julian Merrick, the director, creates is just beautiful throughout. I cannot fault this production except to say that I'm not quite that I, I feel like Tom did himself a bit of an injustice by putting his own work, by by trying to craft something to go with a work that did not need anything to go with it. A challenge, I guess, for Red Stitch, though, if you're going to uh, to put on Sea Wall, because as you say, it, it's a, a mm. solo work and it's a short work of theatre. Yeah. Um, putting it on by by itself would be problematic. Um, do you then put on a, another work by Simon Stevens afterwards? Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's a presents a programming challenge. It does, and I'm really glad that Red Stitch have have tried this approach to tackle it. I mean, I'm so glad that I got to see Seawall and if what I had to, and what the, if what they had to do to enable me to see it was to do this, then wonderful. And I love that they are looking at and approaching and commissioning new work to accompany it instead of just going, well, it's bung in another one-hander. I love that they've gone, let's create something new. I'm just not sure that how the playwright tackled that commission was either of benefit to either made him look good or made the other accompanying work look good. Okay. But take that all with a grain of salt, still knowing that it was one of my favourite things I saw this fortnight, still knowing that both actors are remarkable, still knowing that the writing of both halves is absolutely stunning, but one half might do a little bit more than the other. <laughs> so this is Dead Centre by Tom Holloway, Sea Wall by Simon Stevens, on at Red Stitch, mm-hmm. uh, starring Rosie Lockhart and Ben Prendergast, two actors each in uh, in a, a, a one-person play. And for more info, go to redstitch.net if you would like to book. Mm. Yeah, and so then I guess we'll just finish off with some recommendations for the coming fortnight. Oh, actually, no, I do want to make mention as well before we do that just of... A bit of a shout-out to TBC Theatre? Yeah, a bit of a shout-out to TBC Theatre. Their show, Made in China, is closed now, but both Richard and I saw it and thought that they did... I thought they did just a fantastic job of that text, Made in China, by... Yeah playwright whose name has suddenly gone out of my head and I Same know Same guy him. who wrote Howie the Rookie, I can tell yeah, you that much. Yeah, um, But at any rate... Uh, look, an Irish kung fu gangster drama, it's really difficult to do physical violence on stage. Mm. Um, my one main criticism of this work was that because of the way they'd set up the space with the audience sitting on essentially kind of um, uh, two, ha- two sides of a square and mm. the actors performing the other two sides of a square, it meant that the sight lines for the, for the acts of violence depending on where you sat, you, it yeah. either that looked convincing with punches seeming like they were connecting yeah. or if you were sitting where I was sitting, um, people swinging baseball bats about f- three or four feet away from someone's yeah. head which <laughs> made it suffer a little bit. So yeah. the sight lines yeah. were, were a problem but then it is a challenging space to work with uh, the, the Q44 theatre. very interesting it's a, space. It's, it's a converted yeah. lounge room. I loved the fact that where I was sitting I could uh, there was a window next to me and I could see trains moving in the background yeah. just near Burnley Station. It really added to the urban feel 
style of the work and uh, I thought their accents were strong and I thought the performances were pretty yeah. convincing for the most I part. I thought the chemistry between those three actors was really, really remarkable. I thought it was just tight direction and tight, gritty performances from all three of them really uh really a little a little treat although um i never need to see that much violence in a night i was a little bit traumatized but uh but that's okay i'm you go ahead traumatize me if you make theater that tight and given that we've given tbc theater a shout out i will just mention that their next uh, production uh which will be coming to good time studios which i think is on swanson street in carlton uh is going to be the Melbourne premiere of Tender Napalm, which uh, you can find out more information about that by going to tbctheatre.com. Terrific. And a couple of quick plugs for shows that are coming up. Yeah, so I am pretty excited about Conversations with Gods about their deaths and other matters. That's being written and performed by James... McCoy, I think, is how you say his last name. I'm not doing well at last names these days. Um, it's on at uh, 45 Downstairs and uh, August 12th to 16th. Um, it's two programs running, so if you so you sort of have to go two nights to get the entire thing, is how I is how I understand it. Um, or you can just go and see part of it. But it, but what it is, it's sort of building an intimacy with gods of all religion, with Greek, Christian, Hindu, Indigenous gods, as well as many others about their mortality and about their fears of losing their identity as progress moves on past them. I think that sounds amazing. I'm really looking so, forward so to that. So what's that called? That's called Conversations with Gods about their deaths and other matters. That sounds fun. 45 Downstairs. So keep an eye out for that one. I'm, uh, I've am i already heard uh, some positive word of, word of mouth about Stars of Track and Field on at La Mama, uh, which I think only kicked off uh, last, night. last night. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's on until the 9th of August. It's about a a, a Melbourne teenager living in a Greek Australian family uh, and some of the challenges uh, associated with life as an adolescent in the early 90s uh, in that kind of uh, uh, with some of those cultural influences mixed into the drama as well so yeah. If it's a long, it may be a long way away for some listeners, but as well, I'd like to give a plug for Monash University Theatre, a student theatre's container festival is starting, kicking off this Friday. Um, and that's just a festival of like a, a ridiculously large amount of acts. If you just have a look at the um, at their website, you'll find there's something like hundreds of different acts being put on in tiny, intimate spaces. It's just a beautiful chance for people to try out um things in intimate spaces and and give a real diversity of programming a chance up there so go and check that out if you're anywhere near Clayton um it's actually happening in shipping containers happening in shipping containers yep yep beautiful shipping containers it includes people as well like Mama uh, Mama Alto who is an amazing cabaret star she'll be up performing there um yeah some really beautiful exciting ridiculous work and a lot of new writing and stuff as well and if people want to find out more about that do we know which website they go to um now must does have a website but i think it's sort of through monash uni student uh like the student union so you might want to go to the monash student union page which is msa.monash.edu and yes if you go there you will find all the details for the container festival yeah. Uh, which is running from the 2nd of August uh, at Monash University, Clayton. Oh, Lovely. Terrific. Flora, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rich. We'll catch you in a foyer somewhere soon, quite I'm sure possibly at Theatre Works. <laughs> Hold up. 
Jazz pianist Joe Kindamo from the album Another Place, Some Other Time. Music from the films of the Coen brothers. That was the theme from Blood Simple. If you want to pick up a copy of that album, it's uh, out through Jazz Head Recordings. It's 10.30 and uh, you're tuned to Smart Arts on Triple R. My next guest has been attacked by rhinos, stalked by jaguars, um, charged by a grizzly bear and trapped in quicksand in a tiger reserve. Uh, He is a... uh, a documentary photographer who specialises in wildlife. His name is Steve Winter. Steve, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you had a rural childhood, and even then you dreamed of being a wildlife photographer, I understand. Well, no, I, uh, I did have a rural childhood, and I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer since I was eight years old, but I was more interested in people and culture. I daydreamed about walking the streets of some village halfway around the world uh, and didn't even think about animals and didn't take a photograph of an animal until I was 34 years old. So it's not that I didn't want to do animals, I just, it just didn't enter my mind. Now, it's a very timely uh, week to talk about the value of wildlife and how we document Correct. them, how we shoot animals so that we can look at them rather yeah. than shoot them and stuff them, given uh, the, the death of Cecil the lion. But why is environmental photography important to you? It's vitally important from the first time I ever did it. I was a photojournalist, got a job to go down uh, to work for Merck Pharmaceuticals. I never did a PR shoot before. And uh, worked with dedicated and passionate scientists who were working with the drug company trying to, trying to find new drugs in the rainforest. So I saw the value of the forest immediately, finding out that 50% of our pharmaceuticals come from Mother Nature. But now working with big cats, if you save the top predator in any ecosystem, you save everything underneath it. The forests are the lungs of the world and provide 50% of the oxygen we breathe, 75% of the fresh water. So unless you can uh, walk around without breathing or live without drinking water, maybe we ought to save the ecosystems where these big cats live. It's kind of like a no-brainer to me, but we humans never act until catastrophe happens you know so it's just part of our species I guess so uh, I enjoy working on big cat stories for National Geographic and I just keep doing one after the other and finding ways to get people to look at my pictures Obviously, having uh, those pictures published uh, in National Geographic means you, you, your work is exposed to an international audience right. um, and gives you then greater opportunities for travel and so forth. Has there been, um, I don't know, a particular photo shoot or a particular country that for you has epitomised why this style of documentary photography is so important? Well, I think everywhere I, I go has its challenges. Uh, internally, as a country, I just came from Sri Lanka working on leopards two days ago before that India Um, but photography can change the world we see it happening all the time happened to me as a kid when I was looking at all the civil rights images that were in Life magazine I mean I just did a picture of a mountain lion under the Hollywood signs it was the Hollywood cougar and that has totally 
um, brought together the city of L.A. Uh, because there's a mountain lion in Griffith Park under the Hollywood sign in the largest urban park in the United States right north of L.A. has about 30 mountain lions. They need a wildlife corridor over the second busiest freeway in the United States. Um, the 101 right north of L.A. So everybody's got together to uh, try to make this happen, be the largest wildlife overpass in the world, all because of two images that I got of this cat. You know, all of Hollywood, James Cameron was photographed with my photograph uh, a month ago. You know, some dude from the office, Rain Wilson, you know, has got on board. So, you know, they're getting money. And they're trying to save wildlife So, because we do live with them. As our cities expand and we're looking for homes, we're taking the homes of the wildlife. There's uh, leopards in Mumbai. I just came back from there and got incredible pictures that will appear in the December issue of National Geographic. So, How, Tell us about the process of, of capturing these images then, because anybody who's a, f- a photographer knows that... Uh, to try to capture a split-second image takes uh, a degree of timing, of practice, of right. skill. There's also a degree of luck. Kind of, you can camp out for days and days and days waiting for an animal to appear. Exactly. So uh, that the the photo you just mentioned, for example, of the the mountain lion underneath the Hollywood sign. How long did it take to get to set up and capture that shot? Well, that um, I use remote cameras for those because I spent my early career sitting in hides or blinds and find it to be a total waste of time because especially in today's world Econ- economics and the media play a huge part. We're losing money at the geographic. I mean, not losing money, but we're losing budgets. Budgets are tighter. How can I find a way to get these images without me sitting in a blind? I use remote cameras, learn how to use them when I did snow leopards. I find a area that the animal is walking, find a beautiful image. In the, the instance of the Hollywood Cougar, I saw that picture in my mind before I got there. But it took me months to find the trail that he walked on, set the camera up, took 15 months to get the image. Same thing with Mumbai, I'm setting remote cameras up. Like if I was there lying on the ground, eye to eye, this intimate view of the animal, the picture that I would take if I was there. But I set a remote camera, infrared beam, the animal breaks the beam in my composition, lights go off, takes the picture, boom, and I'm off doing the story because those cameras are working 24-7. And I'm doing the story of the people that live there, the conflict, other you know, images of that animal from a Jeep or an elephant or whatever, and those cameras are constantly working. So it takes a lot of work just tracking the animal and understanding where it goes. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with uh, Steve Winter, who is going to be speaking at Art Centre Melbourne tomorrow night uh, at 8pm, uh, and I'll give you the details of how you can book to catch his talk shortly. But uh, he'll be talking about... Uh, his experiences of working as a documentary wildlife photographer around the world. Um, as I said at the start of our interview, uh, with the media this week has been full of stories about um, a uh, uh, Cecil the lion being, right. being shot and killed. And this is an animal which 
were it still alive, it would bring in so much more money in terms of tourism revenue because people want to come in and photograph these works. Again, the stories you tell through your images and the stories that you write about conservation, about the importance of of saving animals, uh, you must feel, I guess, a, a, a real sense of pride in your work, knowing that your images and your stories can actually help encourage people to donate to wildlife sanctuaries, to get involved, to campaign. Well, 100%, you know, my whole life revolves around conservation of big cats and, and trying to save the world in which we live and get the younger generation to do a better job than we did. Uh, as far as big cats go, there's great things you can do to save lions on National Geographic's Big Cat Initiative. It's causeanuproar.org, and we have this new Five for Big Cats. Uh, campaign going on and you can build to help build a BOMA to help people in Africa you know put their livestock in protected areas so lions don't eat them you know Uh, in many locations in Africa they do have small hunting operations but they're small one or two animals are taken out a year and it's community conservation what happened with Cecil was totally illegal disgusting and this can hunting that's going on in Africa has a very dark side to it now with the influx of uh, the demand for traditional Chinese medicine and bones and things like that that they, these a lot of these lions come out of farms they're farming lions and half the ones that are in those farms are hunted but the other half have a whole new Um, trade going on which is in bones and and skins primarily bones that are shipped to Africa I mean shipped to China and so it's really bad I mean Cecil was totally illegal I mean dragon I've I've seen the cat before four years ago when I was there Um, and uh, but as a journalist I I can tell you a lot of information about it, but Cecil was an old cat that should have just walked off into the sunset and died on his own. Now, if people would like to see Steve Winter talking tomorrow night at Art Centre Melbourne, uh, he's uh, appearing uh, at 8pm at Hamer Hall. You can book by calling 1300 182 183 uh, uh, or online at artcentremelbourne.com.au. is it your hope that not only by uh, travelling the world and, and speaking at, a, uh, at events like tomorrow night that you will not only spread a message about envir- uh, environmentalism but perhaps inspire some other seven-year-old kid to pick up a camera and develop a career as a, as a wildlife photographer as well? A hundred percent. I mean, I'm living my dream and that's what I tell young people to follow your dream, believe in yourself. All my assistants end up at National Geographic. I have three now, one's, 20, one's 22, one's 24 five of those 27 so uh that's what we need the next generation to come through and go you know what you guys really screwed things up we're gonna do a better job (laughs) but it's great i get to tell my life in the uh, 24 years that i've worked at geographic on big cats so it's a great presentation tomorrow night i love it if you would like to see some of steve's quite spectacular images you can go to stevewinterphoto.com 
And as I said, if you'd like to book to see him live on stage tomorrow night uh, at 8pm at Art Centre Melbourne, you can book on 1300 182 183 or online at artcentremelbourne.com.au. And that's National Geographic Live. My Nine Lives is the name of the event. Steve Winter, many thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Chet Faker, and the name of that track was Solo Sunrise. Sunrise is the name of a very significant film, uh, and this is my awkward attempt at a segue to introducing my next guest, Thomas Caldwell, film fan extraordinaire, triple R presenter, uh, and uh, programmer of short films at the Melbourne International Film Festival. That's me. Good morning, Richard. How are you, Thomas? Yeah, I'm good. I'm exhausted. <laughs> but uh, exhausted and, and really looking forward to sitting in with an audience to finally see all these films that I've sort of been putting together with with all my, um, you know, sort of large panel of people recommending to me. So, yeah, it'd be good. I mean, the film comes alive when there's an audience in a cinema seeing it collectively. I'm, I'm looking forward to that experience. As opposed to watching it on your laptop or kind of at your <laughs> desk in an office. Yes. Yeah, that, that's an act out of necessity. But, um, yeah, I'm ready for these films to come alive. How healthy is the state of short filmmaking at the moment, both in Australia and internationally? Look, judging from what I've seen this year, I'd say extremely healthy. Uh, look, I think there's still... There's lots of mixed feelings about the value of the short film, and I think they do struggle to get seen. I mean, for a lot of people, making a short is sort of all about announcing your arrival as a filmmaker to try to progress to feature filmmaking, uh, which is fine, and I completely understand that. But making a short film is an art form into itself. It's, it's the difference between, say, writing a novel and writing a short story. You know, a short film needs to deliver all this kind of story information and emo- an emotional satisfaction in a much smaller running time. And, and I think people are really now starting to harness... I mean, they have been for a long time, but I'm just seeing increasingly people harnessing the art of telling amazing stories within a very short running time. And the big, th- the big difference is uh, the availability of filmmaking now to almost everybody because of the digital technologies. And I'm seeing a huge diversity of films coming through like never before. I mean, I think in Australia for a long time we got lots of kind of shorts which felt like sketches from comedy shows or... or you it was know, the trop fest factor that, that I used to call it. Yeah, that kind of thing. A lot of... Yeah, a, a lot of similar voices and similar attitudes. I'm now seeing so many more types of films, styles of films coming through and just really exciting filmmakers coming up to the ranks, both internationally and within Australia. Uh, that is by far the best part of my job, when you see something and you think, I haven't seen this before, and this is made by you know, some 25-year-old you know, from, from Brunswick. They all live this side of town, funnily <laughs> enough, but um, th- that's a real thrill. Now... Uh, the, the shorts programs at MIF, there's a, a range of short films. Some are presented before features or before uh, mid-length films. Yep. So Adam Elliott, who we were talking to on the show earlier, for example, his 20-minute short Ernie Biscuit is has been paired with Lally Katz's Stories I Want to Tell You in Person. Yes. But then you've got the dedicated short film packages as well. So you've got documentary shorts, animation shorts, uh, experimental shorts, uh, the WTF shorts. Uh, we all know what that stands for. <laughs> Weird, terrifying and funny is what that stands for. Oh, really? 
<laughs> not what I was expecting at all. Um, international shorts packages, documentary shorts packages, and the Accelerator program, mm. which is a uh, uh, in which short filmmakers are placed into an accelerated learning environment as well as having their films shown. Yeah, they're always very exciting films, the Accelerator films. So the deal behind that is uh, MIF Industry, who is the, the, the sort of section of MIF who do the premier fund and a lot of all the 37 degrees south produce the stuff. They also run an intensive five-day program during the festival where a selection of Australian short filmmakers and a handful of New Zealanders as well, um, on the strength of the film they've made for MIF, which we've programmed, they then do this intensive course. And it's sort of more the business side of filmmaking. Um, so, yeah, how to get your f- film out there? How to, um, The idea is that they're people who've reached the top of their game in short filmmaking and they're ready to transition into feature filmmaking. It's a really strong program. I mean, everybody who does it raves about it and we always have far more people wanting to do it than we have places for but you know if you go to the accelerator films you're going to see the filmmakers who will be making the really great Australian and New Zealand films in the next three or four years. And certainly uh, this year you can see for example a a feature film uh, in the mainstream Australian uh, program of the festival from somebody who did the accelerator program a few years ago. Yeah exactly. So uh, but look uh, Tell us about some of your favourite shorts that are in the program, if you can remember them, because you probably programmed some of these three or four months ago. I know, oh, longer. Like, s- some of these are programmed after, you know, October, November last year. But, um, look, it's... Okay, there's some really distinctive voices came through this year. One thing we, we really noticed with feature and short filmmaking is the huge influx of films by Indigenous people and also films um, about Indigenous people. So we've got a lot of really interesting films talking about First Australians. Um, and they're spread out throughout the entire program. At one point, we were thinking about doing an Indigenous shorts program. You know, I had a combination of documentaries, narratives, even an animation, and we thought this could be a cool idea. But I spoke to a few of the filmmakers who said, actually, we'd like to be spread out through the rest of the program, not necessarily be defined this way. And I heard them loud and clear. So we've got some really interesting films like that. There's a... There's some really good stuff in documentary this year, actually. I'm really happy with the two documentary short programs. Normally we just have the one, but I expanded it to two, and that's partly so I could include more of the Australian films. There's a a great film from Queensland called uh, Kieran Deary Lost and Alone. It's a a film about an Indigenous mother and and daughter who live near a place called Skull Hole. This is up near Winton in Queensland. And it's sort of a nice touristy destination, but these women are trying to keep alive the story of um, a really horrific massacre that happened there, you know, white settlers killing Indigenous people. And it's, it's sort of a film, it's a portrait about these two women trying to keep this story alive and make sure people damn well don't forget that this sort of thing happened. But it's, it's a beautifully made film, you know, it, it, it's, it's very stylish. And, you know, that, that, and that screen, just to sh- give you an idea of the diversity, that screen's in a program that includes a documentary all about the origin of skateboarding, made by a guy called Don Burgess, who is, this is his first film, but he's a, he's an Academy Award winning cinematographer, you know, he did things like, he does, he's done most of Robert Zemeckis' films, and he's done things like Spider-Man, so it's a doco about him and his, him and his crew when they were like 12 years old, back in the day, skateboarding. Uh, there's also a remarkable film called Abandoned Goods playing in that in that program. This is a film by um, uh, a woman named Pia Borg, who, who's from Australia originally and now lives overseas. It won a big award at the Locarno Film Festival. Um, really striking film about found art from a, oh, this is a the mental outside, health facility. Yeah, the outsider Sorry, art. Sorry, outsider art, not yeah. found art. Yeah, 
I mean, she is an amazing filmmaker. Last year we screened one of her animations. The year before that we screened an experimental film of hers. That one, she, she's incredible. And this is just taking the form of documentary to sort of new new heights. Um, and it also looks at the way art has functioned within um, um, mental health facilities over the decades. How at first it wasn't encouraged and the inmates kind of did this thing on... Uh, you know, covertly, and then it became part of their therapy. And look, and in the documentary, in the documentary shorts two program, you know, there's another sort of diverse collection of films. We've got a, a really charming film called The Water and the Wall, where the filmmaker, uh, this is a Swiss woman, um, got in touch with an 11 year old foster child, a guy called Bradley, and showed him the Dardine brothers' feature film, The Kid with a Bike, which screened at me for a few years ago. So it's a film all about a troubled kid. Um, uh, who's separated from his parents and then she records this, bo- this foster boy's response to the film and then she goes to Luke Dardine, one of the filmmakers screens that footage for him and then records Luke Dardine's response and they kind of have this filmic discussion. Oh fantastic. It's really gorgeous. Um, that screens in a program with again some really strong Australian filmmakers including um, a film by a local filmmaker Louise Turley. I saw this at the VCA gradua- gra- graduation screenings last year and it it kind of stunned me into silence. It's a film called The Nice House, and it's a portrait of Rosie Batty, who's going to actually come to the screening to also present the film, which is, which is going to be, I think, quite moving. And it's just a, a, very, a very sensitive and, and thoughtful and, and strong documentary about her background, what happened to her, that you know, horrific day when she lost her son, and her, her work as a campaigner now. Um, and obviously taking its title from, I'm assuming, from the fact that, oh, like nice suburban house, nice homes, that kind of stuff doesn't happen here? It's based on a quote of hers where yeah. she says, yeah, this even happens in, you know, in, in the nice house. Yeah. Um, and I do want to give a shout-out because it links in nicely with, with Bowie Mania. In that second documentary shorts program, we're also screening a documentary about David Bowie coming to Australia to shoot uh, his Let's Dance video clip. And the real strength of this film is it focuses on what a political statement that was. I'm coming full circle here because Bowie incorporated Indigenous, uh, mainly kids, to dance. Yeah, Indigenous in the teenagers. Video. It was yep. a very overtly political uh, film clip for its time. So exactly, and yeah. this film, this film examines that, and it, it, it's it's fun and energetic, and uh, yeah, you know, another great little short doco. So the documentary shorts two packages are yes. screening on Sunday the 9th of August at 11 a.m. and Saturday the 15th of August at 1.30pm? Oh, I think the, the, the first one is screening on Saturday the 8th and the second one is on Sunday the 9th and then you've got repeats both on the 15th. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, for more details about all of the, the shorts packages including documentary shorts and more, obviously uh, myth.com.au is the website to go to. Let's quickly just chat about uh, any highlights in the animation shorts packages because it's always fun keeping an eye on what animators are doing and particularly some of the adventurous storytelling techniques and visual flourishes that people are adapting. Yeah, look, I'm more than happy to give a shout-out to a film. I've been tracing... I've been tracking this film for a couple of years ever since I heard about it. A film called Teeth, with which Richard E. Grant narrates. A really macabre, strange little film about a man who's obsessed with his teeth. He hates them, neglects them, lets them decay and falls out, and then gets very obsessed with how he's going to replace them. That's that's a wonderful squeamish little uh, animated film. There's a, a stunning film called Oscar Wilde's The Nightingale and the Rose. This is co-directed by Brendan Fletcher, who made the feature film Mad Bastards a few years ago. And with art and animation by Del Catherine Barton, who's a yep. gorgeous visual artist. 
and that translates into this film. It's stunning. It's sort of a style of animation. It's sort of a 2D, very painted, very Baroque, very lush-looking animation, uh, beautiful score, amazing voice cast, really powerful, strong statement film. Um, and based on an Oscar Wilde short story, so how, how can you not go... How could you miss this film? And we've got an Indigenous um, claymation film in that package as well, a really cute little film called Bush Mechanics, which is kind of taking its cue. Remember the TV series uh, about the Indigenous... It, it, was, it, was, a, it was about Indigenous... The way Indigenous people would use sort of bushcraft to fix cars and all the inventive, often very funny and very clever things they did to fix the car. This is a really cute animation about a a handful of blokes travelling cross-country and an an annoying spirit keeps causing the car to break down. It shows you all all the the tremendous things they do to fix the car. Really fun. And then the filmmakers are coming down from Northern Territory to be there for that screening, so that's exciting. Fantastic. Uh, Thomas Caldwell, you would normally know as a film reviewer on Breakfasters and one of the co-hosts of Plato's Cave, uh, but he is the short film programmer at MIF and uh, has joined us to tell us about just some of the many, many shorts. I'm going to ask you, off the top of your head, do you know how many short films there are in the MIF program this year? I know there's over 100 of them in competition. I think we're pushing up to about 130 once we start including all the retrospectives as well. And I was just going to say, these short films, you're not going to get to see them anywhere else in a cinema. They rarely get released beyond festivals. So this is a chance to see films you're not going to get to see anywhere else. For more information about the short film program at MIF, you want to go to mif.com.au. The Melbourne International Film Festival opening tonight night and running through until the 16th of August. All the films you can uh, poke a stick at and more. Um, your Plato's Cave uh, co-host, Cerise Howard, is going to be joining me here on the show in about uh, 35 minutes' time to review some of the features. That well, she's, she's a good, short, uh, good sort. She is. <laughs> so, uh, Tom, I will probably catch you uh, tonight at, at the MIF opening night. Uh, there may be champagne. Let's have a drink. I look forward to it. Thanks for coming on. Just before those announcements, we heard a track from the Triple R album of the week by Welsh musician Gweno. Uh, the track, I think, I think I'm going to try and pronounce this. I'm trying to, as I recall, a W in Welsh is actually has a double O kind of sound. So it could possibly be called Chaildro, but it probably isn't. I really need to learn Welsh. Uh, the album is called Eardith Olaf. Uh, that's a Y, pronounced I, D-Y-double-D, uh, so D-I-T-H sound is a double D, I know that much, and Olaf, so Edith Olaf, hopefully. If anybody out there speaks Welsh, uh, feel free to send me a, a tweet uh, uh, at Richard the Watts on Twitter and tell me how I've just hideously mispronounced all of that. My next guest has joined me in the studio from Regional Arts Victoria. Malcolm Sanders is the Creative Arts Facilitator and Acting Cultural Partnerships Manager. Malcolm, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, you're here to talk to us about um, an event uh, being presented in partnership, I believe, with uh, Red Cross and the Creative Recovery Network. Um, Creative recovery training for artists. So, in other words, uh, a workshop for artists who want to help facilitate community recovering post-disaster through art. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In, in recent years, we've seen a growth in, in this kind of work being done in communities and obviously living in the country that we do with the number of natural disasters that, that, we, that we have. Um, the notion of how a community recovers and rebuilds 
post-disaster is one that that has required a lot of thought and a lot of a lot of development. And I think we've seen a growth in um, in creative recovery since the uh, the King Lake fires in in two thousand and nine. Well, because yeah, the best example that springs to mind to illustrate what we're talking about in, in terms of helping communities engage and involve and heal the the blacksmith's tree, for example, yeah. in which communities could could contribute to the creation of an artwork as a memorial mm. and also as a way of focusing and channeling their grief. This is an, an extraordinary project and uh, it was uh, led by Amanda Gibson who is currently working with us as a creative arts recovery uh, facilitator uh, up in the Hume, Macedon, Mitchell areas. Uh, this tree was uh, was the result of bringing together a number of blacksmiths in the area who uh, called out to their community to um, to send a, a small forged leaf uh, as as part of this um, as you know post fire, uh, and the response that uh, she had from across the world was extraordinary. So leaves were being crafted by blacksmiths from all around the world and and sent her. The response was overwhelming. So now uh, the the tree has, was completed about a year ago. Uh, it sits um, in a small field up in that area uh, and is a place for reflection and a place for for people to go to to think about that uh, that time and to uh, as a memorial to the people who perished in that area so it's a, it's a really great example of that kind of uh, creative recovery work where um, art can be used as as a, a method of healing so the uh, the the workshop and training program that's being presented in Brunswick on Wednesday the 5th of August mm. for artists listening who think that sounds like something, a, a valuable way I could contribute and use my art to, to help a community heal what should they do if they wanted to participate in the workshop and, and what will they get out of it? It's it's a workshop designed for people as you said who who are at that, that beginning uh, notion of, of how, how might I engage a community what do I do if I'm part of a community that has just experienced disaster or how how do I how do I work? Uh, so this um, this workshop is about working with those artists to to um, to develop a process to to look at how you might engage with the community post disaster. Uh, also methods of self care because obviously oh, the, a really that, important that's part of a it, really yeah. important part of, um, of of the process and resources that you might need in in um, doing that community development work. It's being led by Skosha Munkovic, who is uh, the head of the um, the Creative Recovery Network uh, up in Brisbane, so she's coming down to to, le- to lead this workshop throughout the day, and sort of a better person you, know, you couldn't have in in that respect. Uh, so it is. Um uh, it is for those people working in community sectors um, a, a really invaluable piece of professional development, I think. Now, for some people, I guess, they, they might think, well, these kind of disasters are rare and isolated. It's not often that we have something on the scale of the, the, the Black Saturday bushfires, for mm. example. But mm. disaster comes in many form. It could be a, a, a road accident which takes out five members of a family, a, a key family in an area, for example. There's kind of sliding scales of disaster as, as depressing as oh. that as that is so it clearly this is going to be a significant opportunity for artists working within communities and across a range of art forms Uh, absolutely and i think it you you, you're spot on there the the uh, level of disaster is not always 2009 black saturday uh, uh, kind of level there are 
really, it, it, since that time, have been there've been a number of fires, floods, personal disasters, as you said. The community is impacted in many ways through through many sorts of disasters. It, the climate that we live in and the increasingly um, unpredictable environment that we live in uh, is is kind of dictating that. So I think if you do work in that kind of community, particularly in regional areas, as an artist, then uh, having an awareness of this kind of practice is a really important thing. Now, Malcolm, we mentioned the uh, the blacksmith's tree, for example, as one kind of outstanding example of this kind of... Uh uh, creative recovery uh, uh, through art for communities. What are some other examples that you know of, that you're aware of, that artists have done? Yeah, look, we've been funded through um, the Department of Health and Human Services via Creative Victoria to, to not only run this workshop, but to, to have um, some creative uh, recovery officers working in uh, areas that have recently been affected by bushfire. Um, and part of the work is not only just about what sort of um, uh, art project might be an outcome post-disaster, but also planning, planning for community to make creative recovery part of um, a, a community's plan post-disaster. Post so those, um, those three people are working in areas across the state. Uh, Amanda, as I mentioned before, is working up around the Mount Macedon uh, area. Um, Andrea Lane down in East Gippsland and uh, Carolyn Hamdorf in, uh, in the Grampians area. So they're working with communities to look at... Um, post uh, recent fires 2012 2013 uh, uh, fires um, to look at how how the community responds and how the community might respond again unfortunately it's an inevitability that there'll be another fire in the Grampians at some stage you know we we know that those sort of things will happen in the future so how might a community be better prepared post disaster what happens to um, you know a gallery in the middle of the Grampians and, and where, where does where do those uh, those works go uh, in in a time of crisis, what sort of plans are in place there? What what are the resources that a community has that might that where um, uh, creative uh, work might be activated post disaster? So a lot of that kind of planning, strategic kind of work is being done at this at this time. Now, if you would like to register for this creative recovery training workshop. Uh, produced by Regional Arts Victoria. It's happening on Wednesday the 5th of August from 9.30am till 4pm at the 5th City of Brunswick Scout Hall uh, in Brunswick, uh, uh, in Western Street, Brunswick. Um, and it cost is $25 or free if you're a Regional Arts Victoria member. Bookings are essential, so uh, rav.net.au is the Regional Arts Victoria website where you'll find the relevant information under the What's on section of the website. If you'd like a little bit more information about the event, you can contact Lucy Hamilton, lhamilton at rav.net.au. As we said, bookings are essential for this workshop that's happening on Wednesday the 5th of August from 9.30am till 4 p.m. Uh, in Brunswick at the 5th City of Brunswick Scout Hall. Malcolm, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll, I'm sure, catch you uh, at some other stage to talk about other events that are happening at Regional Arts Victoria. I hope so. ended slightly more abruptly than I was expecting. I was nattering away with Joe Lloyd talking about what we're going to talk about on this segment and Sasquatch and their track 
into your arms suddenly just stopped, leaving me panicked and punching buttons on the desk for just a moment. But of course, now I sound completely calm and rational, despite the fact on the inside I've been going, ah! Hello, Joe Lloyd. Hello, Richard. Nice to have you back in the studio for our Dancing on the Radio segment, which happens fortnightly around this time. Yeah, it's great to be here, and I'm a little lonely on this side yes, without Ger- Gerard. Yeah, Gerard Van Dyke is uh, up with Cage, uh, his company, uh, in Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory as part of the Desert Harmony Festival. Uh, Team of Life, there, the recent Cage production is uh, being uh, is having its Northern Territory premiere, I yeah, believe. Yeah, and I didn't get to see that piece when it was Nor circulating. So, yeah. But, um, we could both jump on a plane and fly it to Tennant Creek tonight. Yeah, let's do it. Have you got a spare? After the show, let's go. I wonder how much a flight to Tennant Creek is. 700 bucks at at such short notice? Jez can shout it. (laughs) (laughs) And the beer when we get there. Um, So, yeah, it's been a little bit busier on the dance uh, landscape, which has been great. I've seen two shows and, um, you know, not to try and put them in a little uh, bracket together, but they do both share a keen interest, these two choreographers, Sarah Aiken is one who presented set at Dance House. And she was a guest on the show last week. Yes, and uh, James Batchelor is the other and he presented his work at um, 45 Downstairs a little long further back in time. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of saw the two and, and they both are very keen to um, incorporate objects into their choreography. And there has been a lot of play with objects. Um, you know, the Ballet Lab piece had a section and there's that blend of, you know, design and choreography and choreography sometimes being defined as structured action. So, uh, you know, thinking a lot in response to these pieces about um, when does um, an object become an action and, you know, the performer doing the action. So that it, it's a really great little... Um, void that people are, are sh- sort of sharing an interest in and to see um, Sarah and James have an interest at this point in their career and to articulate um, their interest through performance the way they did was really um, commendable I think both th- both of them being young but you know really working on their craft and having support to work on their craft through Dance House and other funds um, and you know starting off with Sarah as she had started making this piece back um at Lucy Guerin's Pieces for Small Spaces program a couple of years ago and she just has kept on with these enormous objects, some of them tubes, um, cardboard that are quite heavy, I've heard. Yeah, and which she places on her limbs. It's yes. kind of like the, the imagery for the work is fascinating. It's kind of like as almost as if I almost expected to turn the other way round and th- then suddenly be looking, walking on these great stilt-like yes. uh, uh, extensions of her arms and legs. Yeah, it's like a giraffe kind of. And um, in the later part of the piece, um, she connected with the audience, which she's done in the past in her Lucy work. And um, a friend of mine went up and he said, you know, he had to help support these big objects. And he said three minutes of that and his arms were shaking. So, you know, there was a lot of involved physically. Um, she did some wonderful things with um, projection where she morphed the size of the objects in relation to herself and even had herself situated on a black mug. So she was like a, a little kind of bit of merchandise. I thought she could have sold them in the foyer. But there was this kitsch element. There was, you know, okay, we're looking at objects every day, keys, sneakers. So I thought it was really um, elegant at times, but then he, then very, very humorous. And she's a wonderful performer, very generous. And um, the way she incorporated the audience was really beautiful. Um, 
So it'd be interesting to see where she goes when her next fascination comes up or whether this object work will carry on. Um, and then James, who also has gone on from working in his Kia Choreographic Award process with objects. For him, it's these bricks, these heavy concrete bricks. But in this work at 45 Downstairs, he actually had these um, sort of puzzle-like bricks. And, you know, the piece um, constantly was about him and a couple of other performers um, shifting these objects and rearranging these objects in a very mathematical, methodical way. And his interest um, lays with, um, you know work sites and observing workmen and shifting objects around and so there's that real kind of blend his body then is and the other performers bodies are then blended into these brick structures and it's so uncomfortable to watch them lay down all sweaty you know and get this chalk attached to their skin and but um some beautiful imagery and i think the strength in him is actually his physicality and i'm seeing a shift in what he does and influences from artists he's worked with worked with recently recently like Prulang and just the morphing of vocabulary and I think watching him is a delight so yeah he's also someone where you think great let's see some more um, these are starting works and you know in 10 years who knows what they'll have going on. For both James and Sarah why do you think th- th- this fasc- fascination with the object exists because the body is itself an object on stage and, and, and in dance we watch how that body contorts and moves through space and through time why bring in the additional structure and object that they've been working with do you think? I guess um, always seeking more from the form and sometimes the form needs um, another reflective surface, you know, so sometimes the body does so much and if you want it to progress beyond what's happened in history, sometimes you need to incorporate something else for it to feed off of and, and, and for them maybe maybe these objects are that. I, I did read an article recently and um, a little line in it, it was by Forsyth, William Forsyth, and it was basically um, about objects with choreography and it's called Choreographic Objects. And there was this line uh, he wrote, choreography and dancing are two distinct and very different practices. And then he goes on to say, but is it possible for choreography to generate autonomous expressions of its principles, a choreographic object without the body? So that article I find quite interesting if anyone wants to keep going with that they can look up William Forsyth choreographic objects but it is um, that that sense of you know one in the same no maybe not you know the body on its own is it dancing and is it choreography yes but then and then some you know so it's always interesting especially for people who are developing work and they're exploring something in their body but it's then you know the content versus context and space and form like any other design or art you know Design has played a bit of a role in your choreography. Yeah, and in some bold sort of ways. And, you know, I guess I'm rethinking it um, with the piece I'm working on now and even by stripping it and becoming more minimalist, um, uh, it's still uh, ever-present and informative and one single choice can then throw the piece and represent so much. So, yeah, I've, I've... been sort of reconsidering what is being represented which is quite fascinating and and challenging I guess for all of the collaborators too you know like Jen Hector's hired and you know we were discussing the lighting and set design and she was like so yeah mm. and it's about it's sort of a bit like well yeah I could fire you now and save, a, <laughs> save some money but you, you have to make the space look like you haven't done anything <laughs> 
you know. <laughs> uh, now, uh, as well as your own work, which is coming up next month in August, I do believe. Yes. Um, d- uh, title, dates, venue, quick plug. Arts House, 26th to the 30th. Uh, Confusion for three, it's called. Fantastic. People can go to the Arts House website for more info about that. Um, other works that are coming up uh, that you're keeping an eye on or looking out for? I'm just going to uh, quickly mention uh, a new uh, show from the Australian Ballet coming up called 2021, which is uh, three uh, 20th century slash uh, 21st century works. Uh, so this is kind of, um, yeah, uh, the, the most contemporary ballet that I think the Australian Ballet are presenting this year. So uh, uh, Tim Harbour's world premiere of Filigree and Shadow, sent to a, set to a contemporary electronic score. Uh, and uh, uh, Tyler Tharp, mm. work from uh, called The Upper Room, uh, and George Balanchine's... Uh, Balanchine or Balanchine? Balanchine. Balanchine, thank you. Uh, Symphony in Three Movements, so uh, set to a jazz soundtrack. So three contemporary ballet works. One of them very, very contemporary because it's the world premiere. So that's happening, uh, coming up in Melbourne and it is uh, in late August. So from the 27th of August through until the 5th of September. So that's one to keep an eye out for for contemporary ballet fans uh, in the State Theatre at Art Centre Melbourne. Yes, and there's another one that just got announced at Dance House, which is pretty special. Dance North, all the way up from Townsville, are heading on down. And oh, fantastic. That doesn't happen often at all. No, and I, I was looking actually to see if someone was going to let us know when it last happened, but I can't quite find it. But Dance North has been recently taken over by two young um, dancers and um, makers. Um, mainly, I mean, they're a partnership um in their personal life but also in dance and um the main director is Cole Page he's he's the the director but his partner um Amber Haynes I had to remember her surname (laughs) um is also making a work with him that'll come down in this double bill which is called In Two Minds and it'll be August 21 to 23 so it's quite a short season at Dance House the other work that's involved in the program is the bit that I find it even more exciting, which is Alastair Mackendo's piece, which is called... A Mackin- oh, sorry, I was going to say it's just called Mackendo because I was looking at the website. But no, no, it's called A Preemptive Requiem for Mother Nature. And I just... And the imagery is quite beautiful. And um, he's a really special artist. He recently presented the work with Anthony Hamilton in Dance Massive called Meeting which had those incredible little robots that made incredible score. He's and one of nominated those... for a helpman it was. Yes. Didn't win, unfortunately. But... Yeah. But he, he's, he's a very talented performer, maker, do, you know, doer of all sorts of um, technological fascinations. So that's one to just keep in mind. So the end of August is looking pretty juicy. Um, so get your diary ready. Um, and the other one I just wanted to mention is also coming up in August, which is Yellow Wheels presentation. Um, it's out of town. It's in Frankston. And it's a youth um, presentation. Oh, as part of the Anywhere Festival down in Frankston. Yeah, yeah, and it's August 21 to 22. The best way, I think, to find out about it is actually to get into Facebook and have a look. The title of the piece that's being presented. I'm just having a scan for it. But if you go to Yellow Wheel, they've got plenty of information. The Golden Age in Transit. Excellent. So uh, stuff to look out for. I'm, I'm really excited about that uh, Dance North presentation. That's really, really cool. Yeah, and the- I think the last time Dance North were down... 
I think I could be wrong, was as part of the Australian Dance Awards uh, in Melbourne. Yes. They got country uh, companies from all over the country to come and present extracts of work, for example. So yeah, was that piece. 08 or something? It feels like it may have been. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, this is a really great time to see the company because they're quite fresh. The dancers yeah. are young. There's Harrison Hall, who's a young, um, amazing dancer. And, th- yeah, it's a really good energy coming through. So, Sinking Feeling and a Preemptive Requiem for Mother Nature by Dance North, presented at Dance House in August uh, from the 21st to the 23rd. More info at dancehouse.com.au. I suspect uh, if anyone from Dance House is listening, uh, I want an interview with the dance, the, the new Dance North team. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll organise that. I look forward to that conversation. Good. Finding out what's going on up in... It's Townsville, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I went up there one time and I kind of walked down the main street and went, oh, there's my apartment, there's the place I'm staying, and that's Townsville. <laughs> uh, I've never been myself, so I'll have to uh, do uh, look do something about that at some point as well. Joe Lloyd, thank you for joining us. Oh, very good to be here. We'll catch you in a fortnight time for another Dancing on the Radio segment uh, with you. And uh, by that stage, Gerard Van Dyke will be back from Tennant Creek. Lovely. Catch you then. Bye. Therese Howard normally comes in every other fortnight, but she has joined us this fortnight as well for our Fistful of Celluloid segment, um, because Miff is opening tonight, and Cerise being the dedicated film-goer that she is, she's already seen a few of the films. I'm going to quietly fade the theme down for our Fistful of Celluloid segment. Cerise, Welcome. 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 I am welcome. It's good to be made welcome. Thank you, Richard. Nice to be here. Nice to have you back after your jaunting about Europe again. So Yes, which I have evidently recovered fully from. I'm yes. going to be making uh, a lot of sense yet over the next 10 or so minutes. I promise. I'm glad. Yeah. So, as I said, you've already previewed uh, a bit of a whack of the films at MIF this year. Well, I've been fortunate in that some of the MIF program I've chanced upon on my travels and I have seen, uh, well, I've picked a few titles especially, have a little yak about right now, um, some of the, the stronger of the films that I have seen. So a nice handful, as well as uh, a few classics um, that are turning up in some of the retrospective offerings this year. So oh, it's a bit of a mixture. In fact, it's quite a mixture that uh, I will rabbit on about a little bit right now. Uh, Corn Island, it's a peculiar title, you might think at uh, first hearing, um, might sound a little unpromising, but it is in fact a, a rather, well it's unprecedented in being a Georgian, German, French, Czech and Kazakh co-production and it concerns uh, a similar uh, problem as a recent Georgian film Tangerines uh, covered, uh, which is to do with the conflict in Georgia in which uh, Abkhazian Folk were trying to uh, uh, accomplish some degree of autonomy and independence and wage a war that also embroiled the previous uh, occupying forces there, the Russians. And this is it's, it's a very quiet, still film that takes place over a, a year or so, and you really appreciate the passage of time in it, in which uh, a man who has eked out a hard scrabble life for one senses his entire life just uh, occupies a little island in the middle of disputed territory where he grows his corn, his staple uh, food stuff that will see him through a winter. 
And of course, he's just going to get embroiled in all of this conflict around him. And that this island, of course, is a nice little metaphor. Um, as uh, he's there with his, I think it's his granddaughter, and they just, it just, it's a very quiet, simple time, but it becomes complicated by degrees, as you might imagine, with all of these different forces. And they're, to my ear, different voices, which are a little difficult to discern from one another. But unless it's a really fascinating film, it's extremely beautiful, slow, and quite mesmerizing, and maybe a little sad. Highly recommended. It's won oodles of awards elsewhere. Quite a different beast again is the Duke of Burgundy. Richard, what did you just mouth at me? Richard? What was that last film called? It's Corn Island. Corn Island. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm taking notes. Uh, oh, excellent. Well, the Duke of Burgundy, this will actually get a, a release soon after Myth, but I'm going to talk about because I adored this film like little else I've seen this year, and it probably won't get on as big a screens as people have a chance to see it on as Myth. And there's a new film from Peter Strickland, whose immediately prior film, um, The Barbarian Sound System, I adored. This film, is, as, as that one was, is extremely informed by a love of cinema, especially cinema of around the 60s and 70s, in this case more of the erotic persuasion than of the Italian thriller persuasion. But this film has lots of lashings of Czechoslovak New Wave influence in there as well. It's a, a sadomasochistic fantasy. It's, it's a world populated entirely by women who seem to have an interest in butterflies. Uh, it's extremely dreamlike and yet I think carries an awful lot of truth about relationships of any sort. Uh, it's uh, ultimately very moving, but uh, along the way also extremely uh, transfixing visually and orally. It's just a, a singularly beautiful film and uh, I, I adored it. It's absolutely one of my favourites of the entire year to date. As is, and this will come as... Hold on, I'm just going to remind uh, people that Cerise's adored film of the year to date is The Duke of Burgundy. The Duke of Burgundy. Um, another much adored film from a, a long-time uh, adored filmmaker of mine is Guy Madden's new film, The Forbidden Room, and it won't be for all tastes. It will clear uh, maybe half the cinema out, probably, but if you have a love of silent cinema and a love of all of its unexplored possibilities and potential and long abandoned, then this is the film for you. It's a, a, and it should have easily have been, could he just as easily have been in Myth's psychedelic cinema section this year. It's, uh, it was part of a, a project he was involved with at Centre Pompidou and elsewhere in the last couple of years in which he conducted seances trying to bring back to life or to life that they never had, uh, films that were either variously unmade or lost or begun but abandoned. And it has a, an extraordinary cast of um, people ranging from Udo Kier to Matthew Almerich to Charlotte Rampling to all manner of other arthouse stars uh, in stories within stories which continually nest themselves within one another, each of them in this, uh, in Madden's trademark silent or quasi-silent film aesthetic. His films always look like silent films that have somehow been left to rot for 80 years but have always contained plots much too outlandish to have ever been <laughs> uh, of, of that era. That this, this, these um, shorts compiled in this are of that era, just that they weren't necessarily ever made. And it's, it's just a, a stunningly gorgeous film. It's quite a, a thing to behold. It's still a bit of a test of your patience, especially if you're not really tuned into where Madden's coming from. It'll just be baffling, I should expect. But I think anyone out there who's a little adventurous and would like to do a little bit of homework or get a bit better acquainted with the marvellous world of silent film should check out The Forbidden Room. OK, sounds intriguing. Yeah, uh, Another interesting film of um, a lot less ambitious variety, 
rather more grounded in current day reality, but still blurring uh, fiction and fact, is Koza from uh, Slovak director Ivan Ostrakovsky. Described as a para-documentary road movie, it concerns Peter Koza, Balaj, uh, Koza is goat in Slovak, once a boxer at the Olympic Games, and indeed he is played by a boxer who was once an Olympian. Um, now, Peter's fallen on hard times. In fact, he may never have got out of hard times, to be honest. Um, he lives in a, a ghetto uh, inhabited principally by the rather disenfranchised Romani population of Slovakia. And he's, his boxing heyday is long gone, but he needs to... Well, he, he hatches a plan in order to make quickly needed money to get back in the ring for he has a girlfriend who needs an abortion. Quite an uh, atypical uh, motivating factor for a couple of buddies to get on the road and, and uh, embark upon some adventures. It's, it is comedic to a point, but it's also rather bleak and depressing, but also, I think, a, a really interesting film. It's a feature debut from someone who's had a lot of experience in documentaries, and you can tell there's a real verism in this film, and uh, I quite highly recommend it. It's called Cosa. Um, That's uh, spelled K-O-Z-A, yeah. in case you were looking for it in the MIF program. That's right. You, you could just search for it uh, under the using the keyword Slovakia, and uh, you'll find it easily. Yeah. Uh, the Nightmare, pretty bland-sounding title, but uh, of all of the films in this year's Night Shift offerings, this is the one that, well, it did grab me, you could almost say quite literally. This is uh, from director Rodney... Asher, who previously gave us the Stanley Kubrick shining um, conspiracy theorist compendium documentary, Room 237. This is a really fascinating film about sleep paralysis, something which the director is apparently prone to and various people out there in the world are prone to. I myself have not had too many um, experiences of this nature. I'm absolutely terrified at the thought of them. This is whereby uh, you might find yourself waking from sleep to find yourself immobile and possibly some demonic figure taunting you beside your bed. Uh, Various people recount their experiences of this very phenomenon in the film, which are then uh, dramatised in quite harrowing fashion. It's absolutely terrifying. And I saw this late at night at a festival way over yonder and went back quietly into my hotel room and could not sleep for hours. It was absolutely freaky. Um, I've never suffered kind of uh, night terrors and sleep paralysis. Yeah. So uh, I, I suspect that perhaps this film might have less impact on me than, uh, than uh, others such as yourself, but it still sounds intriguing. I'd wager it would still give you the heebie-jeebies big time. Uh, because of, oh God, yeah, as soon as your mind goes there and you're just trying to fall asleep, it becomes very frightening. It's, yeah, it's not so scary within the cinema itself, it's just what you take to bed with you. Uh, one last new film that I'll, I will really rave about is an animation from Tom Moore, his new film, The Song of the Sea. Now, Richard, I had an idea. You might have seen one of his previous films that screened at Myth, The Secret of Kells, did I you? I did, when it was originally uh, called Brendan and the Secret uh-huh. of Kells, yeah, yeah. before they tweaked the title slightly. The most gorgeous kind of ha- old-fashioned, hand-drawn cell animation that 
used Irish mythology and uh, Celtic knotwork and all that imagery you would know from uh, the Book of Kells, the gorgeously illuminated medieval manuscript. Uh, it adapted that for its animation style. It was sublime and just a, a simple story, but beautifully told as well. So I have very much the feeling that this new film, which I think is about Selkies, is that that's right? right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So again, it's uh, thick with Celtic legend and folklore. Uh, it's, uh, and is every bit as stunningly beautiful as that previous film, though I think there's a little more computer-generated imagery in there amongst all of his uh, familiar, more handcrafted uh, animation stylings. But yes, it concerns a, a young girl, Sershi, uh, a girl who, though mute, uh, may have some hidden dimensions to her. Um, just possibly she can turn into a seal. But uh, that might be the least of her problems. Uh, There's an absent mother, a resentful brother and a sad father all thrown into the mix and some uh, problems over property and perhaps some problems of a more apocalyptic nature in the fairy kingdom. Um, It's it's just a a really beautiful sort of fairy tale, uh, but its it's Celtic flavours are um, unmistakable and it's not just a soundtrack and that sort of wistful banshee wailing. It's uh, Everything about it seems very authentic and uh, it, it's stunningly beautiful, so that comes very highly recommended, Song of the Sea. Song of the... I'm looking forward to that, so, uh, yeah, I do love a bit of Celtic myth me and a bit of animation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm going to just plug a couple of films that I haven't seen yet but which I am looking forward to immensely. One of them is by an ex-housemate uh, of mine and written by an ex-neighbour of mine. Um, Melbourne, it's incestuous, I tell you. Um, the film is called Sucker. It's uh, short filmmaker Ben Chessel's feature debut uh, based on a screenplay by Lawrence Lung. Uh, and uh, I believe a semi-autobiographical screenplay by Lawrence uh, about a young Chinese-Australian lad uh, cheats and fails at his high school exams, destroying his chance of a medical degree. He goes off and um, discovers uh, a different kind of conning and scamming. Uh, So it should be intriguing, I think. Uh, So definitely looking forward to that. Um, I've raved about Holding the Man already. I'm very much looking forward to the feature presentation of Neil Armfield's latest film. The last film he directed was Candy, which I was underwhelmed by. Mm. Um, You saw that as well? Uh, uh, Only on TV, actually, and even then I don't think I caught all of it, but I didn't didn't get drawn into it, especially, as I recall. Yeah. There's another Australian film I'm intrigued to see, Porno, which is uh, filmed over in Footscray uh, in the western suburbs. Um, and uh, Grant Schlacuna's, uh I hope I've got his, pronounced his surname correctly. Sorry, Grant. Uh, Down River, his feature-length debut as well, which is in some ways a sequel to uh, an award-winning short film that he made a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, so... A lot to see. I kind of still need to organise tickets, for, like to actually book tickets for a bunch of films. So uh, yeah, likewise, I might do that this afternoon, given that the festival opens tonight. Yeah, well, there's an extraordinary uh, volume of material to sift through. There's an immensely, immensely enormous program running over. Was it 17 or 18 days? So uh, it's much too much to even begin to try to cover in this segment. Fortunately, uh, we'll be doing rolling coverage throughout the festival. Uh, here and we will and, and i'm sure plato's cave as yeah, well yeah so monday nights between seven and eight i and my plato's cave colleagues one of whom you've already had on the show today wearing multiple hats Mr. thomas Caldwell, Caldwell. yeah um so yes there's, there's all sorts of wonders to be had but i'll just 
in winding up, point people to one of my favourite films of all time, that screening in the Psychedelia section, which I know to be having a screening at four in the afternoon tomorrow and a, another screening on a Saturday later in the festival, and that's the extraordinary Czechoslovak new wave film Daisies by the late Viera Hitilova. Just one of the most sublimely strange and wonderful and feministly awakened and aware films of all time, irrespective of whether it came out of and was a sort of a produce of a slightly tyrannical regime. Um, but then that very sort of regime enabled women filmmakers sometimes to get projects like this up that would never would never be commercially viable today, I wouldn't think. But this is just such a singular film, so full of extraordinary imagery and pranksterism and wastefulness. Uh, there's a banquet scene which just has to be seen to be believed, which was allegedly why the film was banned for many years by the communists. They took a dim view of, of the entire film, of course, but they were especially upset at the wastefulness of food. Amazing film anyway. Uh, people, go see Daisies. Daisies at the Melbourne International Film Festival. So Reese will be joining us fortnight... Uh, it normally joins us fortnightly, but while Miff is on, we'll be coming in weekly to uh, review some Hurrah. of the films she has seen and uh, share her tips with you. Um, you can catch her again on Monday night on Plato's Cave. Mm-hmm. So Reese, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Richard. Triple R is the station you're tuned to. It's one minute to midday, which means Chris Gill will be with us very, very shortly to funk up the airwaves and keep it very cool for the next couple of hours. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. I will be back with another edition of Smart Arts next Thursday between 9am and midday. Uh, hope between now and then that you uh, manage to catch a few films at MIF and also perhaps that you uh, manage to sit down with the program for the Melbourne Writers Festival which has also just been launched recently and uh, book yourself a couple of sessions there. There's some good stuff happening including, I'm just going to give a quick plug to the one of the panels that I'm doing, uh, a conversation about arts journalism with a, a colleague from The Age. So we'll be talking about the value of arts journalism, why, it's, uh, why it matters, and uh, talking about our own craft and writing. But as I said, stick around because uh, it's about time to get down. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci. listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R.